You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since it's highly likely that the majority of you have probably not even read the, the book of Philemon, yet alone studied it, before we work our way through the entire substance of the text, only to close by unpacking two overarching themes, themes relevant, I think, to today's culture, I want to start this morning by just laying out a little bit of background, some background context, some relevant information about the letter itself. Following a dramatic clash with the religious leaders of Judaism, his very life was in jeopardy. Therefore, the Apostle Paul, the book of Acts, closes with Paul, who was a Roman citizen by birth, on his way to the capital city to stand trial before Caesar Nero. That's how the book of Acts closes. The year is presently 62 A.D., The beloved apostle is being held captive. He's in chains under house arrest when he pens this letter. Now, there's no doubt that Paul's freedom has been seriously restricted by his circumstances. On a flip side, such a dynamic does afford him the opportunity to write, which ends up being very important. During his confinement, the apostle Paul will pen letters Letters located in churches that were in the cities of Philippi, that was the letter to the Philippians, Ephesus, Ephesians, as well as writing to the city of Colossae, the church there known as Colossians. Paul will also, in addition to writing to these three churches, pen a letter to a specific man named Philemon. Beyond the importance of Paul's writing ministry during these years, there is also evidence that Paul was able to influence those around him. Case in point, Paul, at the close of his letter to the Philippians, he'll make an amazing statement. He'll say, all the saints greet you, meaning he had interactions with the saints, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Paul is in house arrest under constant guard, but that gave him the perfect opportunity to evangelize. The guards are getting saved. Additionally, it would also appear that Paul was able to maintain some ability to minister outside of the walls of his cell as well. Enter a runaway by the name of Onesius. While we're not given a whole lot of information, biographical information about Onesius, such as we don't know his his ethnicity, we don't know how old he is, we don't know how long he's been on the run, we don't know why he fled his master in the first place. All we know about Onesius is that he's arrived in Rome after undertaking a thousand-mile journey from the city of Colossae, which was located in present-day Turkey, or in that day, Asia Minor. In addition to being a refugee, we also know Onesius had stolen money from his master, making him a wanted man. Historically, in the Roman Empire, because there were roughly 60 million slaves, Rome always feared a rebellion, a slave rebellion. As such, slaves who rebelled against their masters and and ran, those that would dare run, they were in peril. This is Onesius. 
He's made his way to the heart of Rome, hoping to get lost in a sea of humanity. Now, we're, we're not given any of the details, the specifics on how Onesius ends up crossing paths with the Apostle Paul. But there are a few th- observations from the substance of the letter. At some point in time, Onesius has fled his master, he's fled Colossae, he's made a thousand mile journey to the heart of Rome. He's wanting to to, to disappear. And he runs across this short little pudgy Jewish man who's under arrest. We don't know how the paths cross, we have no clue, but his paths cross with Paul. And at some juncture, the Apostle Paul starts sharing his faith with Onesius. And Onesius gives his life to Christ. He gets saved. His life is changed. In addition to then being discipled by none other than the Apostle Paul, in his gratitude, Onesius proved to be a dependable helper to Paul in in his confinement. And yet, in a twist of fate and irony, the Apostle Paul and this runaway slave, they end up sharing an interesting connection. We don't know when this detail emerged, but come to find out in the course of their dialogue that Paul and Onesius shared an interesting relational connection. A man by the name of Philemon, who just so happened to be Onesius's master. You know, the one he's fled from and stolen money from? At some point, some juncture, in Onesius' discipleship, Paul reaches the conclusion that it would be for Onesius' benefit for he to return to Philemon and make things right. Scripture actually indicates that Paul's letter to the church located in Colossae, Colossians, was not only sent along with the letter to Philemon, but that these two letters were carried by two men. Can you guess one of the men? Onesius. Colossians 4, verses 7 through 9, records that Tacticus, a beloved brother, Paul writes, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may make known circumstances, comforts, your your heart. I'm sending him with Onesius, who then Paul says is a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. That's the context, the background. But before we work through the text of the letter, it's important you understand that Philemon, the letter, is completely unique among what we would call the Pauline epistles. Though the majority of Paul's writings were addressed to a local church, hence their title, Romans, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, etc., Corinth, Corinthians, And beyond that, even the writings that Paul would label for an individual were still meant to be read before the church for public consumption. Letters like 1st and 2nd Timothy wrote them to Timothy, but they were written to be presented to the church as well as Titus. Paul's letters that are included in, in canon are written for the purposes of being consumed by the church at large with the exception of this letter. You see, Philemon was was not meant for the church at large. It was meant instead as a personal note, which then explains its its brevity. It's only 25 verses, as well as the subject matter. Now, knowing the toxic relationship that Onesius had with Philemon, you know, master and runaway slave, 
in addition to the fact that, that Philemon had been wronged, Onesius had stolen money from Philemon, knowing there would be legal ramifications for Onesius' return. Paul writes to Philemon on Onesius' behalf. And note that there was some context, some, some cultural context, uh, some precedents for this. According to Greek and Roman law, an escaped slave was allowed sanctuary and either an altar, which was a, a place of worship, or the home of one of the master's close friends. If the slave was convinced to return home, he did so. The friend would then write a letter of recommendation, you know, advocating for the slave's behalf. But if a slave was like, I am not going back to that place, well, then it was, it was legal for the friend or the place of worship to resell the slave, take the money, and repay the original master. So Paul is writing on behalf of a slave. It's a normal thing. Now, the context, it's not only fascinating, but you need to understand before we get to the letter, it's unparalleled in Scripture. Imagine, Paul is in a Roman cell, has led a runaway slave by the name of Onesius to Jesus, only to now be sending Onesius back to his master Philemon with a letter of endorsement. That is the context, the framework for this particular letter. Imagine the moment. You know, word begins to spread through the local Christian community there in Colossae that, that Paul has sent some letters he sent a letter to the church. Word then happens to spread that, that Paul had a personal correspondence to his friend Philemon. Oh, Philemon would have been excited. Who's bringing over the letter? Oh, one of the guys that Paul sent, he'll, be, he'll, he'll swing by your house later tonight. And then Philemon, you know, hey, the carrier's here, opens the door, and it's Onesius. Like, this would have been quite a moment. Let's dive into the text. No chapters, just verses. Verse 1, Paul opens, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this letter much differently than he does most. Not only does he fail here to reference his apostleship, he does this in nine of his 13 letters, but Paul introduces himself as a prisoner. No, not a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar, a prisoner of Nero, but a prisoner of Jesus. Though he is being held by Rome under strict guard, Paul viewed his circumstances much differently. The sovereignty of God was at work in his present situation. Understand, failing to mention his apostleship, as he does, ironically, in the companion letter, the letter to Colossians, this wasn't an accident. Paul is making it clear to Philemon that he's not writing under an apostolic authority. Like Paul is not, not writing in his official God-ordained capacity. Paul is writing to Philemon, not as a pastor, not as an overseer, not even as an authority. Paul is writing as a dear friend. The letter is to be received as just a personal correspondence. The mention of the beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, actually adds to the personalized nature of the letter. Most theologians see 
Aphia as Philemon's wife, with Archippus being his son. Archippus is actually mentioned by several of the early church fathers as even potentially being the pastor of the church here in Colossae. I love Paul's familiar salutation to this man and his family. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like right from the beginning, Paul is, he's doing something important. In the first few words, he is reminding Philemon of two profound realities. First, his friendship, his relationship with God the Father was based how? In his works, his efforts, his merit, his energies? No, no, no. Philemon's relationship with God the Father was based in a grace that he had received through Jesus, who was not only his Lord or his King, but was the Christ, his Savior. Secondly, Paul's salutation aims at reminding Philemon that both his peace with God and peace with his fellow man, where did it flow from? From within him? No, it flowed from the same grace that had reconciled him to God through Jesus. Now, since the importance of grace is going to reemerge at the end of the letter, I'm going to kind of punt a more detailed explanation to the end. Now, in his greeting, Paul affirms several important things about Philemon, which is important because this is the only time that you have Philemon mentioned in the Bible. Two things. Not only was Philemon viewed by Paul as a, quote, beloved friend. He was also a fellow laborer. This is how Paul defines Philemon. Aside from that, the text makes it evident that a portion of the church actually met in Philemon's home, that they had a home fellowship. Now, we, while we have no idea how Paul and Philemon, how their paths crossed, it is very clear from the greeting that Philemon had not only encountered Jesus for himself, but that Paul had probably instigated that, made the introduction, and that they were dear friends. They had grown close together. Verse 4, Paul continues by saying, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have this great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. And then he says, brother, as Paul shifts from the greeting to the substance of his letter, there are several things he also affirms about Philemon. First and foremost, Paul wants his dear friend, to know that while, while he may be sitting in a Roman cell with his future uncertain, what is Paul doing? He's not only praying, but he's praying for Philemon, that Philemon, this man a thousand miles away, as Paul's in, in a Roman cell, that, that Philemon was on his heart, on his mind. He was praying for him. To this end, he says that he makes mention of him always. This was not a one-time prayer. It was a constant thing. Now, you'll find this, this phrase, make mention you know, of you always. You'll find this as, as a kind of a common thing in Paul's letters. But what makes this instance significant is that it's the only time we have recorded in the Bible that Paul prays for a specific person. Most of the time, he makes mention of the church 
or a group of elders or a group of people. But in this instance, he's, he's like, you, bro, you're, you're my dog. And I'm praying for you constantly. Now notice the substance of Paul's prayer. He says, I thank my God for you always. Whatever the connection these two men had, it's evident that their love for one another, man, it, it went deep. You know, they, they say that there's nothing, nothing deeper than blood, right? Now there's one thing, spirit. Spirit runs deeper than blood. And in this instance, Philemon and Paul, they were kindred spirits. They were brothers. Paul is thankful for this. As he thinks about Philemon, he cherishes their friendship. He cherishes the fact that, they, that they've labored together in some capacity. Paul was also grateful for the wonderful reputation that Philemon had in his community. He says, look back at the, take, the text, I thank my God for you always, but I thank my God hearing of your love. I'm so thankful when I hear about your love and I hear about the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. Like Philemon was not only known by his love for and faith in Jesus, but this was a love and a faith that overflowed from his life to all the saints. He loved Jesus. He had a faith in Jesus, but that love and that faith manifested. Like you might say that Philemon had an effective faith one that manifested in a love for others. Paul continues by explaining that while Philemon had developed such a sterling stature in his area, in his church, it though was his prayer as a friend, quote, that the sharing of his faith may become, or literally more effective, by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. What Paul means by this is that his prayer his prayer was that Philemon might continue to grow in, in, in the knowledge of something specific. My prayer, Philemon, is that you continually expand your understanding that every good thing manifesting from your life comes only from Jesus. That, like, that's what he's saying. He's saying, man, I'm praying that you not just like wade into the shallow end of grace, but that you might continue to swim deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, Paul, he understands a lesson important for us, that greater ministry effectiveness only stems from an increased awareness that anything good in your life doesn't exist because of you. Like the more you understand that I'm a total idiot apart from Jesus, that anything good coming from my life is a manifestation of him and his work. If, if, if my marriage was dependent upon me, I'm in a heap load of trouble. But I need to constantly come to the knowledge that it's Jesus. And the more I understand it's Jesus, the more I rely on Jesus, the more that I realize, man, I need way more of him in my marriage than me. I mess it up. He, not so much. Like he's like, I'm praying that that your ministry effectiveness would increase as you increase your knowledge that, man, you're an idiot apart from Christ. That, that is literally what his prayer is. The more you grow in this knowledge, the more you depend on Jesus and not yourself. That is how we become more effective Christians. And why was this important? Paul says, for we have great, great joy and consolation in your love. 
because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. Been refreshed. Philemon was making such an impact that Paul was praying in a Roman cell that this would not only continue, that God would not only continue to work through his brother, but that this work would expand exponentially. (laughs) Though Philemon doesn't know it yet, Paul is about to give him an opportunity to do just this. Man, your grace, it's powerful, man. I pray it increases, and now I'm going to give you a chance. Verse 8, therefore, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Therefore, that's an important word. Anytime you're reading through the Bible and you run across a therefore, Paul uses it a lot. It's a, it's a transition term meant to link it to the previous idea. Anytime you see therefore, ask, what is it therefore? Because Paul is building on an idea. Like Paul's literally saying here, because of the work that Jesus is doing in you, brother, the work he's doing through you, I want to make an appeal. That's what Paul's saying. Now, Paul feels, and he's clear, that he had every right to issue a command. Paul could have issued a directive, right? And yet, the apostle believes that it was more important, he says, for love's sake, to ask a favor just of a dear friend. He's like, I might be very bold to command, but for love's sake, I'm going to suggest. This word appeal in the Greek, it means to call to one side or to admonish. It's like Philemon, come to me, man. Let me share my heart a little bit. Now, now Paul knows that what he's about to ask of Philemon will be challenging. (laughs) Which probably explains why Paul also, I don't know if you noticed it, doesn't he kind of butter him up a little? Like, like, do you feel he's it's kind of like he's 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 writing, hey Philemon! Man, okay. I know that I could tell you what to do. Knowing you would obey me, that's how we roll. But as a dear friend, you know, aged, old. Now, I mean, aside from that, I'm a prisoner. I just, you know, I would rather share my heart. Have you listen in. He says, verse 10, I appeal to you. For my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was profitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel, but... Without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. The purpose of Paul's appeal now comes front and center, right? Though Onesius may have ran, which undoubtedly had come at a personal cost to Philemon. He says that Onesius was once profitable, past tense. And a twist of fate... Onesius had now become of pivotal benefit to Paul, right? He used to be profitable to you, and he ran. And he came to me. Now he's super profitable to me. 
Paul explains that not only had he led Onesius to the Lord, he says, this is what he means by the phrase, whom I have begotten while in my chains. I saw Onesius birthed spiritually. I was there as he was coming out. I caught him. I cut the umbilical cord. I gave him some milk. Like, he, like not only did I begot him, beget him. I don't know what vernacular there would be, but not only was I there, but man, I, I nourished him. I cherished him. Paul uses this term. He's like, Onesius is, he's a son. Paul calls him a son. Philemon was a brother. Onesius was a son. And their relationship since Onesius' salvation, man, it had become so important to Paul that he says, I really wish, like my heart, like really what I wanted to do, I wanted to keep him. That on your behalf, he might minister to me and my chains for the gospel. Paul didn't want to send him back. But in spite of all of that, he still knew that the right thing for Onesius would be to return and reconcile with his master Philemon. Before Onesius would be benefit, beneficial long term, he'd have to get this dealt with. Couldn't be hanging over his head. Paul's appeal and his heart was for Philemon to do what? Well, the text tells us. Paul's heart here. I'm sending him back for this purpose, that you might receive him and forgive him. And then set him free so he can come back and continue to minister to me. He adds, but without your consent, I was not going to do anything. In order for Onesius to be free, Paul knew Philemon would have to liberate him. And it couldn't happen by compulsion. You know, Paul could have issued a command. But that the better way for it to occur would be for Paul to make an appeal, Philemon to be moved, and to do it voluntarily. Verse 15. For perhaps Onesius departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? I like the way that Paul, he transitions. He goes from one point transitioning to the next. He uses this phrase, for perhaps. I like that. Because Paul here, he's, he's resisting what so many of us end up doing. Like he's not going to play the Holy Spirit in Philemon's life. For perhaps. He's not going to be overly dogmatic. And he does this because in no way does Paul want to make the claim that the harm that Onesius had practically caused Philemon personally by running and then stealing from him was part of God's providential plan. Sometimes, you know, when someone's really hurting, we're like, it's all part of God's plan. The, the problem with that is what we're saying is like, yeah, all of your pain and your hurt and your disappointment, yeah, God intended for you. Now, it might be true to some degree, but it's not the right counsel in the moment. He says, perhaps. I don't know, I'm not God. But perhaps he departed for this purpose. See, Paul is seeking here to challenge Philemon's perspective. In light of the fact that Onesius ran away only to cross paths with Paul, where he eventually came to know Jesus as his personal savior, could Philemon at least concede that some good came out of something bad? I mean, that's his point. 
Like, perhaps. He departed for this purpose. For this purpose. While Onesius likely ran from Philemon for all the wrong reasons, there is no doubt that God did have a larger purpose in mind, right? And what was it? Like, what resulted from it all? He got saved. Like, he got saved. Not only had Onesius lifted Paul's spirits when he was in prison, but in the process of it all, he had become Philemon's brother. And this is what Paul is wanting to see. I don't know why he went, for perhaps it was God's plan, but I can't tell you what resulted. He got to Rome. We crossed paths. He crossed the path with Jesus. He's coming back, not as a slave, but as a brother. It's powerful. He wants Philemon to have an eternal perspective. He's trying to get his eyes you know, off of the, the, the horizontal and onto the vertical to have a heavenly vantage point of this particular situation. Verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him. Receive him as you would receive me. But if, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul... And writing with my own hand. Just, just a quick aside. Paul had bad eyesight. We know that historically. Most of the time he dictated his letters. More than likely, it was Timothy, which is why the introductory is Paul's like, hey, I'm Paul. And Timothy, because Timothy was the one you know, actually putting pen to page. And yet in this instance, what's probably happening is Paul, he's rolling, he's flowing. And he's like, Timothy, give me that. And with probably big letters, a different font, a different look, Paul begins to write with his own hand here. I am Paul, writing with my own hand. I will repay. And then he probably gives Timothy the pen back, only to add, not to mention, that you owe me, like even your own self, <laughs> besides. In a profound sense, Paul, Paul is wanting Philemon to see that there was no longer a difference between he and Onesius. Like though at one point they, they may have had this master-slave dynamic, there was no escaping the reality that these two men were now brothers in Christ Jesus. And to hammer home that point, Paul goes so far as to, as to say, it's, it's, it's a directive. He says, receive him the same way you would receive me. What a picture. Like Paul so deeply wants Philemon to forgive, to restore, to let go of his hurt, to set Onesius free, that Paul is willing not just to stand alongside of a man who is guilty, to identify, but Paul was willing to take whatever punishment Onesius had coming, Paul was willing to take that Onto himself. He says, if he's wronged you, if whatever it is that he owes you is a burden to us fixing this problem, you charge it to my account. As long as you remember, you kind of owe me everything. But, you know, we'll balance it. Like, that's what he says. Verse 20, yes, brother, let me have joy from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will even do more than I say. 
But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. <laughs> for I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. And then he closes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, once again, the ball is in Philemon's court, right? Paul is simply appealing to a dearly beloved friend. He's not making demands. And yet, there is no doubt that Paul is emphatic. He, like he writes, I love this phrase. It translates terribly into English. He, he, says, he says, let me have joy. That's what he says, right? In the Greek, the word used for joy, it's onimi. It means to be useful. In actuality, the name is the root for Onesius. Like what Paul's doing here is he's, there's a play on words in the original language. He says, let me have joy, or literally, let me have Onesius, the one who will give me joy. If this can get reconciled, I'll have joy. Give him to me. Refresh my heart. Let's refresh my heart. We've heard that, right, in the letter. You see, Paul's kind of playing back on an earlier mention, right, of how Philemon, how his love and faith in Jesus had manifested to those around him. Now he's like, the love and faith you have for Jesus, man, it's a blessing to those around you. Now may it be a blessing to me. Refresh me. My prayer, bro, has been for you to grow in grace. Here is an opportunity. I know you've been harmed. I could, but I won't tell you what to do. That said, you know, Philemon, I have the confidence. I know you, bro. You're going to do more than I've even asked. As you consider Jesus and all that he's done. Now, we're not told here what Philemon does. But there is historical evidence that he indeed responds to Paul's appeal. He forgives Onesius. There's actually historical evidence that Onesius, from this point forward, is used in mighty ways. That he goes back as a minister with Paul, becomes a disciple of Paul. You know, one of the grand questions that people have had, knowing that Philemon is unique, why of, of, of likely all of the personal correspondence that Paul had, well, why is this one letter picked out of probably hundreds and hundreds of options to be included in the canon of Scripture, according to a man by the name of Ignatius, who was writing to the church in Ephesus in the first century. Ignatius does something really interesting. He mentions in his writings a succession of pastors who, mentioned in the, who, who ministered in the church of Ephesus. He mentions that there was the apostle John, who was succeeded by Timothy. Timothy became the pastor when John went to Jesus. But after Timothy, Ignatius mentions that he was replaced by, you want to guess? Onesius. Guzik, David Guzik writes, there is historical evidence that the letters of Paul were first gathered as a group in the church of Ephesus. Perhaps Onesius compiled the letters and wanted to make sure his charter of freedom was included. You know, aside from that little nugget, I can see all kinds of reasons 
why the Holy Spirit would want this letter of all included. Now, before we unpack these two overarching themes that I think are presented in the letter, we do need to address the elephant in the room. Like that big old elephant sitting right there on the page. There's no way around an interesting reality. There is no way around the fact that Philemon, a friend of the Apostle Paul, a believer, a minister of the gospel, a good man, known with the reputation of having love and faith in Jesus, whose very house the early church met. There is no way around the fact that that guy who had encountered Jesus owned slaves. Right? It's kind of a problem, isn't it? And it just jumps right off the page. Like, hey, there's some cool things, but dude owns slaves, which is why it's important to establish profile for Philemon, because he's not a bad guy. Now, there are many ways that you could seek to tackle such a difficult topic. On one hand, I could excuse Philemon by saying slavery was simply a cultural norm. You know, the Roman Empire. I mean, most of the world was enslaved. Not to mention, I mean, slavery was the norm in every single culture leading up to Rome. Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, even the Jewish people. Aside from this, I could attempt to defend Philemon by drawing an important distinction between slavery and in the first century context as opposed to the way that we view slavery and a westernized 21st century perspective. Like, for example, like I could say that in the Mosaic Law, as well as in Grecian or Roman contexts, slavery, slavery was, was a voluntary act. In a lot of instances, it was a voluntary act that was designed for the benefit of the person to help them pay off a debt or provide for one's basic needs. Like the truth of history is as a manifestation, uh, is that slavery as a manifestation of racial prejudices like we saw and have seen in America. Did you realize that racial prejudice leading to slavery as an idea that didn't actually emerge until the 16th century. Like slavery in biblical terms didn't carry with it the same social stigma. I, I could make that argument if I so choose. Uh, if I wanted to get philosophical in my defense of Philemon, I could make the argument that while we've abolished slavery, have we really? Like have we, have we achieved freedom? Like the sad truth is that almost everyone in our free society actually finds themselves in a different kind of slavery altogether. Many of you are enslaved. Student debt, credit card debt, a job you hate but have to have. A lot of you are enslaved to an addiction, a sexual proclivity, an insecurity. <laughs> Mike Tyson, he made an interesting comment. He said, some people try to get you out of slavery, and here's why, so that you can be their slave. Though in America, there is no doubt that we've been afforded liberty. It is only a liberty to choose our ultimate masters. Plato, he said the most aggravated form of slavery comes out of the most extreme liberty. Excess of liberty 
seems to pass into excess of slavery. If, if I wanted to get spiritual about it, couldn't I make the argument that even Christianity isn't the freedom from slavery, but an opportunity to choose a better master, Jesus Christ? Like men like Paul, James, Peter, Jude, Epaphras, who's mentioned in the text. In Scripture, they're described this way. They describe themselves this way, that we are bond servants of Jesus Christ. Also doesn't translate well. We're love slaves. We have chosen to be a slave of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 7.22, Paul, Paul writes that he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Doesn't mix words. In Philippians 2.7, Paul even goes so far as to describe Jesus as presenting himself to humanity as a slave to the Father. The truth is that the Bible is clear that humanity was not created to be free from authority or governance. We either serve the true and the living God or we find ourselves enslaved to our base desires. In Romans 1.25, Paul says when humanity fell from our design, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Andy Warhol, a man known for his excesses, this is how he describes life. Quote, Being born is like being kidnapped and then sold into slavery. And yet, don't mistake all of this as the Bible condoning slavery or me. Okay. Like in the modern context, as slavery manifests from a, a place of racial superiority, there is no part of the Bible that condones that. In Galatians, Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In his letter to Colossians, the companion letter to Philemon, Paul again confirms, writing, quote, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. With all this in mind, with the little time I have left, I want to get to these two big ideas. Two big ideas established in this little letter. First, notice how Paul seeks to influence social change. Don't forget, he's writing to a slave master, lobbying for him to forgive and set free a, a runaway. You know, I guess in order to, to really understand the essence of what Paul is doing, maybe we should at least mention what he isn't doing. Like what, what isn't done. Never once in this letter do we see Paul rebuke Philemon for owning slaves. Did you find it in there? I didn't. As a matter of fact, Paul is very careful not to overstep his authority. Instead of issuing a command or a directive, Paul makes an appeal to Philemon as a loving friend. In actuality, Paul even acknowledges how Onesius' actions had negatively impacted him, a slave owner. Additionally, we don't find Paul railing against the existence of slavery either. Once again, Paul refuses to delve into the intricacies of this social topic, going so far as to send Onesius back to his master. Why? To avoid controversy. 
As an apostle, Paul issues no mandates seeking the abolishment of slavery, nor does he make championing that injustice his platform. You know, in contrast to the way Christians today try to enact social change aimed at rectifying real societal injustices, you know, Paul employs a completely different approach. What does Paul do so contrary to what we do? Paul is not interested in the issue. What is he interested in? He's interested in the heart. Paul seeks to influence the heart, the human heart, and he does it in two ways. First, Paul begins and ends his letter how? Boldly proclaiming the grace of God. It's the first word, and it's the end. You see, it was a simple reality that the same grace that had saved Philemon had saved Onesius. You see, through the prism of God's grace, found only in Jesus. Paul is trying to get Philemon to view Onesius in a different context. Not only did God's grace remove all distinctions, but it created between Philemon and Onesius a much larger similarity. Because of Christ, because of what Christ had done on the cross for Philemon, but also for Onesius. Onesius is his brother. Like Paul could say in such a context, receive him forever, because he's no longer a slave. He's more than that. He's a beloved brother, not just in the flesh, but in the Lord. What makes Paul so, his, his approach so brilliant is that he's effectively abolishing the framework for slavery by emphasizing God's grace. That's why I think the letter's included. Though previously, Philemon and Onesius had a slave-master relationship. <laughs> How do you have that when you're brothers, when you're equals, when you've been saved by the same person and the same mechanism? Paul's appeal is really for Philemon to treat Onesius how Christ had treated him, with an unmerited favor and grace. You know, honestly, as Christians... We face all types of social injustices within our culture, but we would be wise to model Paul's approach. Like notice, Paul sought to influence social change without convoluting his larger message. Like Paul could preach grace alone, knowing that grace was the only power in the world to change a human heart. You know, unlike many Christians, have you noticed that we have become known by what we're against? as opposed to what we're for. Have you seen that that's happened? Christians are often known as anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-Hollywood, anti-liberal, anti-Trump, anti-Obama, or at least Obamacare, anti-NFL, anti-gun, anti-cop, on and on and on and on. Christians get known by this. And yet, with Paul. Because Paul championed Christ and Christ alone, He didn't allow himself to become defined by things he was against. But instead, he was defined by the one person he was for. And that was Jesus. Like, like aside from this, what makes his strategy revolutionary is that Paul knew that grace was the only way to affect real change. Instead of employing an outside-in approach to change, you know, imposing laws 
onto sinful man, Paul employs an inside-out approach, transforming the human heart. Understand, because culture reflects society, railing against cultural decay fails to address the core problem. Don't miss this. The key to the transformation of culture is the transformation of the individual's who make up society that make up that culture. What Paul's doing is brilliant because he's overlooking the issue and he's going to the heart, knowing if I could change the heart, I'll change the culture. Sure, legislation is the ultimate byproduct of society's change of heart on issues, but it's never the catalyst. Attempting change through law is never the remedy. (laughs) We've had 50 years of civil rights law, but to what end? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the country is more divided than ever before, and racial tensions are at their highest. You know what our culture needs? It's not Christians picketing or protesting social ills. What our world needs most is Christians boldly proclaiming Jesus and the power of his saving grace, proclaiming a similarity that will transcend anything that might divide us. That's what we need. Onesius, he could have refused to return to Philemon on the basis that slavery was wrong. Philemon could have refused to forgive on the basis he'd been robbed. Sadly, if both men or either man played the victim, they would have both missed out on the greater miracle, reconciliation. And yet, since Paul's focus is on the heart, behind the injustice and not the injustice itself, God's grace challenged the way both men saw themselves and then influenced the way they saw each other. How can I own a slave when we were brothers in Jesus through his grace? Now, the other big idea established in this letter, this, is, this will be quick, but it builds off the radical nature of grace. On their own, I think we could agree, it's probably unlikely that these two men would have reconciled. Like, what was needed for Onesius to go back and Philemon to forgive? Like, what was needed? (laughs) A man like Paul. An arbitrator. Like, it's amazing that Paul felt so strongly about Onesius returning and Philemon forgiving that he's willing to absorb the costs to make that happen. Regardless of the issue of slavery, there's no doubt Onesius was a guilty man. He'd stolen from Philemon. And while Paul's appeal was for Philemon to forgive on the basis of God's grace, the apostle steps up to the plate. I am willing to pay the price to make restitution because I believe so deeply in reconciliation. (laughs) This is why I ultimately think the letter is included. Does Paul's actions here sound like anyone else we know? Maybe Jesus? Like, what a picture of Jesus. It's true, you know, you and I, we had a master that we ran from, like Onesius. In spite of God's love, the life that he provided, we fled, stealing in the process the life that he gave. (laughs) Truth? Many of us ran as far as we possibly could hoping to get lost in the shuffle. But then something happened. Our path crossed with Jesus. 
wasn't what we were wanting to do. It's not why we were running. It wasn't with the intention, but somehow, and for maybe that purpose, our path crossed with Jesus. How amazing that in Jesus' desire to see us reconciled with the God that we were running from, Jesus was not only willing to stand with you, the guilty, but like Paul, Jesus was willing to pay your debt to see you reconciled. Martin Luther says this. He says, here we see Paul. He lays himself out for poor Onesius. And with all his means, pleads his cause to his master, and so sets himself up as if he were Onesius, and had himself done wrong to Philemon. Even as Christ did for us with God the Father, thus also Paul does Paul for Onesius with Philemon. And then, and then I like the way Luther closes the thought. He says, we are all his Onesiuses, to my thinking. You were lost, on the run, and then you encountered Jesus. And the thought crossed your mind. I still have this debt, man. I still owe something. I can't pay it. I'm not quite sure I want to pay it. I want to be reconciled with God, but maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe I'm too far away. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I will arbitrate. In Hebrews, Jesus is called the mediator. When, when we stand before God's throne and Satan beats his condemnation drum, pointing out all your faults, Jesus stands there and says, I've paid them all. I've satisfied whatever debt they owe. And why? Because he loves us. You know, the appeal of Jesus before his father for all those who'd come into his grace is the same one that Paul made to Philemon. I want to read another section of this again. But I want you to hear Jesus saying it to his father and not Paul to, to Philemon, okay? Jesus says this to his father on your behalf. If, if then you count me as a partner, receive him or her. Receive him as you would receive me, dad. Receive him as you would receive me. And if he or she has wronged you or owes you anything, Father, put it on my account. I will repay. That is the work that Jesus did on the cross. Philemon, two big ideas. How do we influence change? The flip side to it, Jesus this picture of Jesus. And the two go hand in hand because here's the reality. God's grace changes everything. So Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Zach Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Zach's teaching ministry by visiting zachadams.org.